Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That's where we are this morning in our verse-by-verse study of this letter. And in these two verses, particularly in verse 16, Paul gives us the main theme of the rest of this letter. Everything else that is to be said in the 16 chapters of Romans is a further explanation of these two verses. The chief doctrinal point of the whole letter of Romans is this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everything else that comes after this is unpacking the glory of that statement. There is a lot of really, really good stuff in these two verses. These are verses that should fill our hearts with joy. These are verses that I want, that I desire, that I pray that God would get into the bloodstream of our church. These verses are all about the gospel, and my prayer is that we at Mount Hermon will be all about the gospel, so that Sunday through Saturday, in every possible aspect of our lives, my prayer is that we will live in and be constantly shaped by the gospel. And that's what Romans is all about. I've heard it from more than one person in recent days, and it's absolutely true. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel changes who we are. The gospel changes what we think about. The gospel changes what we talk about. The gospel changes our relationships. It changes our goals in life. The gospel changes the way we spend our time and our money. And it it didn't just change those things at one time in the past, but rather, as we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the depths of the gospel, it is still changing all of those aspects of who we are. We are to be a gospel people. And as we become more and more of a gospel people, we are becoming more and more Christ-like. For what is the gospel but the message of Christ? So we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking the glorious truths found in these two verses. And I pray that as we do, God will work among us. This morning, we're going to focus on the first few words of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the sermon has two parts. First, I want to focus on Paul. Why would anyone think that he is ashamed of the gospel? And why is he not ashamed? And in the second part of the sermon, I want to talk about us. Why might we be ashamed of the gospel? 
And why should we never be ashamed? Part one, Paul. Why would anyone think that Paul is ashamed of the gospel? Why why does he feel the need to say this? Here is a man who was in and out of prison because of his passion for the gospel. Here is a man who was stoned and left for dead because of his commitment to the gospel. Here is a man who was three times beaten with rods, five times received the 40 lashes minus one, the skin of his back being ripped off for the sake of his commitment to the gospel. In every town, he could not but speak boldly of the good news of Jesus. Who in their right mind would accuse Paul of being ashamed? I mean, even if we knew nothing about all of that, even if we did not know about Paul's life and Paul's ministry, if all we had was this letter, the 15 verses that we've already studied should convince us that this is not a man ashamed of the gospel. In the very first verse of the letter, he said, Hi, my name is Paul, and my life is about the gospel. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm a called apostle. I have been set apart for the gospel. The gospel is my life. It's who I am. It's what I've given myself to. And in the verse just before this one, verse 15, what is the very thing he has just said? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So why does Paul feel the need to assert that he is not ashamed of the gospel? Well, here is my suggestion of why I think he says this. You See if you agree. I think verse 16 exists because some in the church in Rome might have had reason to doubt what Paul has just said in verses 14 and 15. That is, they heard verses 14 and 15. They've they've heard verses 1 through 15 about Paul's eagerness and his love for the gospel. And yet maybe there would still be some reason that they would accuse him of being ashamed. And what could that be? Well, he's just told us that he is obligated to preach the gospel to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And we learned last Lord's Day evening that when Paul says he's obligated to preach to the Greeks, he's not talking about people from Greece. Rather, the word Greeks was used to describe those people who were well-cultured, those who were refined, those who were civilized. The empire was Roman, but the high culture of the empire was Greek. And these people to whom Paul sends this letter, would have been considered Greeks. These were people who lived in the capital city of the largest empire the world had ever known at that point. They were surrounded by politics, by sports, by literature and music, by religion and philosophy. They lived among the worldly wise of the day. So why has Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, 
not visited them. This all-important, strategically located church through which inroads could be made to all the other Gentile peoples of the Roman Empire. Why has Paul been on three missionary journeys? Why has he visited some churches numerous times? Why has he been in city after city preaching the gospel, but he's not yet come to the center, to Rome? Paul has already given us two reasons why he hasn't come. One, he's been prevented by the will of God. And two, he's obligated to all the Gentiles, from the least to the greatest. But maybe someone might be tempted to raise the accusation that the real reason Paul had not come to preach the gospel in Rome is because he was embarrassed to do so there in the center of high culture and philosophy. The movers and shakers of the day were there. Rome was a city of Greeks. And Paul, he knows how Greeks respond to the gospel. He's told us how Greeks respond to the gospel. Just go to the very next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice how Paul says... Greeks respond to the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Look at verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, Paul has already told us there that to the Greeks who love knowledge and seek wisdom, this message of God having a son dying on a cross between two thieves is foolish, ridiculous, silly, dumb, unbelievable. And so... The Christians in Rome knew what this was like. These who had believed the gospel were considered foolish in the eyes of the people around them. Some looked upon them as misguided idiots. Others looked upon them with suspicion as if they were dangerous. The Christians in Rome were accused of creating disturbances in the city. 
When Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49, he did so claiming that the Jews were causing trouble at, quote, the instigation of Cresto. And many think that Claudius there was actually speaking of the name of Christ and was blaming troubles in the city on those Christian Jews. Fifteen years later, we know that Emperor Nero blamed the great fire of Rome on those Christians, though many think he started it himself. The Christians were easy targets because they were already ostracized. They were already looked down upon by their fellow citizens. These Christians did not worship the emperor like everyone else. They did not participate in the religious customs and the festivals of the day. They did not participate in the immoral lifestyle of the Romans. The gospel had made these people aliens and strangers in their own city. At times, they were declared enemies of the state. And some were put on trial. And some were fed to lions. And some were burnt at the stake. The intensity of the persecution came in waves. Sometimes it was a, uh, an intense time of persecution. Sometimes it ebbed back a bit. But the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ was a temptation that these Roman Christians knew very well. And here they are in the thick of it. And this apostle to the Gentiles has so far not come. Could it be that the Apostle Paul is ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome? Paul says, absolutely not. I have not come because though I'd longed to come, so far in God's will I've been prevented. But Romans, hear me. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why was Paul not ashamed? Well, the gospel that the Jews stumbled over and that the Greeks saw as foolishness is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek why is Paul not ashamed to proclaim the gospel even in Rome? Because his gospel is the only hope of any person that has ever lived, no matter who they are. The rich and the poor. The knowledgeable and the ignorant. The master and the slave. The Greek and the barbarian. All are equal when it comes to a need for the gospel. The gospel is the great leveler of all mankind. None are saved without it. And all who believe in it are saved. Paul was not intimidated. I assure you. Paul stood before authorities, Felix and Drusilla, Festus, King Agrippa and Bernice, and boldly preached the gospel. These were the authorities of the day. Paul preached the gospel to the sick and the poor and the powerful and the wealthy. He was not afraid to stand in Athens 
the center of intellectualism and philosophy, and proclaimed to them that he knew the unknown God to whom they sacrificed, for there's only one God, the man Christ Jesus. And we're told that some of them mocked. But some of them came back with questions, and we're even told that some believed. Is the gospel foolishness to the Greeks? Yes, but not to those who are called. Not to those whom God grants faith. To them the gospel is, is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It is the way of salvation. And therefore Paul is not intimidated and he's not embarrassed and he's not ashamed. He is eager to preach the gospel. And he did. For God did eventually bring him to Rome. In fact, look with me. In, in most of your Bibles, just turn back one page. Look at the last two verses of the book of Acts where Paul was in Rome. The last two verses of the book of Acts. Here's Paul under house arrest. Acts 28, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So these aren't just words, folks. He was not ashamed to preach the gospel even in Rome and preach he did. Well, that's Paul. Let's talk about us. Why might you and I be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? I'm going to very briefly give you the first six reasons that came to my mind. You can probably think of more. Number one, we might be ashamed of the gospel because the smartest people in our society tell us that it's foolishness. Statistics continue to bear out for us that the more educated an American is, the more the least li- I'm sorry, the less likely that person is to be an evangelical Christian. Uh, Pew uh, Research Forum just did this thing back in 2007, uh, largest religious survey of, of Americans in a long time. The statistics were the same as they had been before. The higher degree you have, the less likely it is that you are going to believe the gospel of Jesus. It cuts more than one way. Some of the most intelligent people in our nation tell us that we now live in the age of science, the age of empiricism, and it is foolish to believe in anything that cannot be observed with our senses. And thus a large number of those who claim to be atheists or agnostics in our country are highly educated intellectual people. But many more of the highly educated people in our land are not atheists and they're not agnostics. They have no problem saying that there is a God. What they reject as ridiculous and foolishness is the belief that Jesus is the only way to God. How arrogant, how self-centered to think that Christians have it right and no one else does. Sometime back, as uh, Crystal and I were in the car listening to, to NPR, we heard a guest on there explain that we should picture God 
as the center of a wheel with different spokes coming out of him. And each one of those spokes represents a different religion. And it really doesn't matter around that wheel which religion you choose. In the end, they'll all lead you to God. That is the attitude of the highly educated of our day. This lady told of a, of a test, a scientific test, she said, because science is important. And, and so they had taken these various people of different religions and they said, we want you all to pray or meditate according to your own religion. We want you each to commune with God. And they put these things on their heads that would uh, scan their brains and tell what part of their brains were working. And surprise, when these people, each of them felt that they were communing with their God, the same part of the brain lit up. And so we were told, could it be that all of these people praying to their own gods were in fact praying to the same God? Because it was the same biological process going on. Folks, that's the kind of culture we live in. It is popular, it is considered enlightened to say that there is no one absolute truth, but that always lead to God. And in this climate, where the only thing that is not acceptable is belief in Jesus is the only way. Atheism, acceptable. Agnosticism, acceptable. Pluralism, acceptable. Worshiping your car, acceptable. Bowing down to a tree, acceptable. But believing in Christ as the only way to God so that others are not in if they are not in Christ, that's unacceptable. And in that climate, we might be tempted to keep our mouth shut. Or, a second reason we might be ashamed of the gospel is because our gospel is increasingly misunderstood and mischaracterized to make us look like dummies for believing it. When we hear how others describe what we believe, it is often in a way that puts us down as ridiculous. Let me just give you an illustration. This is from a very popular atheistic website. This is an illustration of the Christian message according to their perspective. I was driving 66 in a 65 mile per hour zone. I got pulled over and got a ticket and had to go to court. The judge said that because I had broken the law, I had to serve the maximum sentence of life in prison with no possibility of parole at a maximum security penitentiary. I thought the sentence was a bit steep, but I realized later that we all fall short of the glory of the judge who never broke any laws whatsoever and cannot tolerate even the slightest unlawfulness. So I had no choice but to accept my punishment. However, the judge did take pity on me. He called his son in and proceeded to brutally whip him with a cat of nine tails until he was raw and bloody and then nailed him to a cross until he was dead. He then told me to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and I did. And after that, he said I was free to go. I walked out of the courtroom a free man as did the serial child molester who also ate the judge's son's flesh and blood. He was a cannibal. He really didn't mind. 
There was this other woman. She said she didn't want to cannibalize the judge's son, that she didn't do anything wrong, but the judge just said that all have committed crimes and all must be endlessly punished for them. And the only way for her to escape was for her to eat his son. The woman refused. So she was sentenced to life in prison. Anyways, I'm a free man now, so my schedule is pretty full. I've been spending most of my time at the judge's house thanking him for freeing me and telling him how great he is over and over and over and over and over again. You say, Justin, that illustration of what we believe is ridiculous. That is a gross distortion of what we believe. And you'd be right. But I think you would be surprised to learn how many people living within just a few miles of our church would hear that illustration and agree with it and pat themselves on the back for not being suckered in to believing a message like that. We live in a day in which Christians are continually, increasingly mischaracterized. And so, in order not to be considered a fool, we might be ashamed and keep our mouth shut. We might be ashamed because Christians, number three, are being increasingly blamed for the troubles of the world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, New York Times best-selling books by Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins place the blame for violence, for much of the violence and bloodshed of the history of the world, as well as for obstacles to progress. They put that blame squarely on the shoulder of Christians. If it wasn't for Christians... We wouldn't have this problem or that problem. We find ourselves being blamed for things, much the way the early Roman Christians were. Number four, we might be ashamed because we're beginning to see the loss of government protection. In recent years, we've begun to see in other Western nations bills passed through their governments that take away the protections that Christians once knew. The battles right now are mainly over homosexuality. In some European countries, the gospel can still be preached, just not in a way that says that homosexuality is evil. That is hate speech and can be prosecuted by law. And there are many smarter than me who think that this is the beginning of a loss of protection for Christians in the West and that there might come a day when we in America will no longer be able to preach Christ crucified for sinners without fear of prosecution by the government. As that day approaches, might we not be ashamed of the gospel? Number five, we might be ashamed because we are beginning to see the rise of a more violent enemy. The truth is, the intellectual progressives that have led Western civilization for the last several centuries do not right now appear as if they are going to be the ones who win the day. That is, that atheistic progressive future that some talk about where we have this liberal government persecuting Christians. Right now, that's looking less and less likely. Because when we look to Europe, who is a little ahead of us in all this, we find that the progressives are not having children. The Muslims are. And so you've heard projections in recent years that in so many years, such and such percentage of Europe will be Islamic. And so, 
There's a possibility that there will be a day in the lives maybe of our children or our children's children when they will be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because of the very real threat of losing their lives to violent Muslim extremists who see the gospel of Jesus as blasphemy to be punished by death. You may say, Justin, that's far-fetched. Let me just remind you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in that very circumstance right now. For some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not far-fetched at all. They are there. Might they not be tempted to keep their mouth shut about their faith in Christ? Finally, number six. Again, there's many more you could probably think of. We might be ashamed of the gospel because those around us who are still enslaved to their sins won't like us. The truth be told, most of us in this room do not keep quiet about the gospel because we fear death or physical persecution or government oppression. Rather, we are tempted to keep quiet about the gospel because we want people to like us. We don't want people to think we're weird, religious nuts, Bible thumpers, killjoys. We want to be accepted by others. And so we tend to keep our mouths shut about Christ. Mount Hermon, we must come to the place. I pray that many of you are there, but we all have room to grow here. We need to come to the place where being accepted by Jesus is enough. And that we are okay, not happy with it, but we are okay not being accepted by others if it means being accepted by Christ. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37, 38. Jesus doesn't tell us that because He enjoys bringing trouble into our lives. Jesus tells us this because He knows that if we truly love Him, the world will truly hate us. It hated Him. And the more you come to love Him and look like Him, the more your life changes and becomes more Christ-like, the more out of sync you're going to look like in this world. The rest of the world going downstream, suddenly you're fighting upstream. Our world doesn't like upstream people. Every day, again and again, we face the choice. Will I speak boldly about the Christ I love to others, bringing glory to Him and hope to those who hear? Or will I fear rejection? Will I fear being disliked so much that I will choose not to glorify Him, choose not to speak His name, choose not to speak the words that those around me so desperately need to hear? Why should we, Mount Hermon, not be ashamed of the gospel? We should not be ashamed because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes 
The Gospel is for everyone. And therefore, like Paul, our obligation, our calling, our drive should be to get the Gospel to everyone. The Gospel is for those who look down on us. The Gospel is for those who make fun of us. The Gospel is for those who mischaracterize us. The Gospel is for those who oppose us. The Gospel is for those who would take away our freedoms. The Gospel is for those who would put a gun to our heads and pull the trigger. The Gospel is for all of them. They need it. And if they do not hear it, and if they do not believe it, they will die. And we were once just like them. And praise God that someone was not ashamed of the gospel to us, but spoke. Christ is worthy of the glory of all people. There is no sphere on planet earth in which the name of Christ should be withheld. We should proclaim Christ to the most educated and the least educated, to the most conservative and the most liberal to Muslims and Buddhists, Hindus and atheists and pretend Christians. We should proclaim Christ to everyone for He made them all. His salvation is open to all and one day He will stand as judge over all. There will come a day when the wisdom of this world will be seen for what it is, empty, hollow, and unable to save. And on that day, Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So don't be ashamed. Live for the glory of Christ. The gospel is more important than our lives. It is better to share the gospel and to be hated than to be ashamed of the gospel and be loved. It is better to share the gospel and be lonely than to be ashamed of the gospel and be popular. It is better to share the gospel and be killed than to be ashamed of the gospel and live a hundred years. From eternity's perspective, a wasted life is a life that keeps quiet about Christ. A meaningful life is one that is centered on knowing Christ and making Christ known. We're almost done, but Mount Hermon, we need to understand that to be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It is to be ashamed of our Savior Himself. How can we think upon Christ dying in our place, bearing our transgressions, enduring the hell that we deserved, and then be ashamed of Him? How can you be ashamed of the king who is sitting on his throne holding the whole world in his hands? Jesus has been nothing but good to you. Nothing but perfect to you. Nothing but pure and loving and gracious towards you. Jesus is watching over you. He's keeping you. He's bringing you to Himself. He has wedded Himself to you. He intends to give you heaven forever. He just unloads His blessings on you. Will you now be ashamed of Him? Will you now be ashamed of His cross where He purchased your salvation? Will you be ashamed of the Gospel? Mount Hermon, we are all at times tempted to be ashamed. Hear this. 
Christ died for that sin too. There is forgiveness. Don't leave here depressed. I'm not telling you all this because I want to knock you down and send you out. I'm telling you this because I want to bring us to repentance. I want to bring us to conviction. But then let us remember and believe what the Bible tells us. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. In fact, even now, Jesus is giving to us spiritual growth so that we will begin to win more and more victories when the temptation to be ashamed comes. So in the strength that Christ provides, trusting in His grace, rejoicing in His forgiveness, let us love Christ, let us love the gospel, let us never be ashamed of it. But let us speak it to all those around us who desperately need to hear it. For the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.